Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Nick Buchanan. Nick and his father founded a data software business called Bucks Analytics in 2007. Bucks builds deep analytical dashboards for CEOs that pull from internal data sources like ERPs, inventory systems, and more. Longtime customer Trevor Flanagan, CEO of the Flint Group, introduced us after hearing about my deep curiosity of data companies. Nick and I talk about building the company with his father, building momentum in product development and sticking close to customers, hiring a talented team, and how to find groups and peers to help guide your entrepreneurial journey. Please enjoy this fantastic conversation with Nick Buchanan. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Oberly Risk Strategies, a modern insurance broker serving small companies, search funds, and other small company acquirers and investors. CEO August Felker joins me today. So folks talk a lot about insurance prices going up. Where do you see them going down? So the biggest changes we've seen since COVID is in the sort of management liability insurance lines, which which would be if you bought directors and officers insurance or employment practices liability. During the COVID period, those prices were going up double digit because there was a lot of fear that boards would be sued as a response to their sort of how they're handling COVID. And now as that sort of dust has settled a little bit on that front, we're seeing rates on the management liability side moderating, even going down in some cases. So that's great news. That is great news. Thanks, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I'm really glad that Trevor was able to introduce us. It's great to meet you and to chat with you a little bit more. Can you walk us through kind of Bucks Analytics as a company and maybe the product itself and then the founding story of the business? Yeah. You know, first, thanks for having me on. Like we discussed, I, as Trevor turned me on to the, the podcast, it's, it's been a lot of fun to listen to and a lot of great guests on it and uh, enjoyed it. So Bucks was founded a little over 10 years ago. Started with my father. We were, I was starting my career in public accounting with Deloitte, mostly in audit, but had the opportunity to do a few consulting jobs around like activity based costing, balance scorecards, MA transaction, bankruptcy. So all over the board. He has worked 25 plus years with Sprint in everything from being some of the first people to buy up cellular spectrum to running their supply chain, helping them overhaul billing wide variety of different projects. And so as he had left there, he had started doing consulting with small, you know, small meeting businesses, one of which was a Berkshire backed company. And as I got burnt out with Deloitte, I had the opportunity to go do some projects with him. And when we first started, we were focused primarily on how do we help companies understand re- return on invested capital. So Simple concept, but one that a lot of mid-market businesses didn't understand. How, do, how are they using their capital within their businesses? And then driving that down to a very granular level to help them understand 
you know, how are they getting a return on by customer, by vendor, by product? Um, so a very dynamic product that helped tie together balance sheet and income statement items. And people started to see a lot of value. But where there were barriers to get in, where people didn't know how to get us data. And so I had the opportunity to start to, I mean, that was, if somebody said, I'd love to use your product, I just don't know how to get integrated. I would start spending time saying, I can figure it out. And so they would give me free reign on their system to go in and help pull the data out to integrate with our system. And so what we found through that time is people had more needs for data than just the one KPI we were focused on. And people were spending a lot of time monitoring their businesses through just 20 tab Excel spreadsheets, through everybody in the organization spending time creating monitoring analysis to help them understand what's going on. So that was kind of the beginning of Bucks. And where it's turned to now after learning that is a data aggregation platform targeted towards financial accounting and operational analysts. And so what that means, we've spent as businesses the last 10 to 20 years getting digitizing workflows through accounting systems, CRM systems, payroll systems. And that's been really good at driving productivity because people are able to capture data. But what that's done is create stores of data in the cloud, on-prem, in flat files, all these different spots. And you know what Bucks does is able to pretty quickly, without any technical background, integrate all those data sources into a legible single source of truth to now have a automated flow of information into all your different reporting channels, whether that's a BI tool like Tableau or Power BI, email, Excel, PDFs. It's one source of truth to drive all those reporting needs. And so it's kind of a unique unique spot. You have some large players working with ETL pipelines, or you have other customer or other products that are really out of like canned reports that are focused on specific reporting needs. And we kind of found that if we make it very efficient to get data, our clients, which are typically private equity firms and private equity backed companies, are able to get the information they need, they set it up, and now their team is focused on value creation and using those informations information instead of you know the pivot cut paste data jockeying that you know a lot of people have learned to love create these massive excel spreadsheets that as one of our board members talks about i'd spend two weeks aggregating that data to report to the board to then spend the next two weeks disaggregating the data to help answer questions and then i'd start the cycle all over again the next month and you know he became a fan of us because we could basically automate that whole workflow. You're able to take a financial statement and drill down in real time down to a transaction to help understand what's causing that variance or you know blip on your radar that you want to go investigate. And there are a few industries that you've specialized in, or is it pretty broad in terms of where it applies? It's been pretty broad. We have we started with our working capital background in distribution manufacturing, but now we have we've kind of grown into SaaS, other SaaS companies. We've grown into service companies. 
product companies and it, it's the data model's pretty because it retains all the granularity of your data from your GL down to all the different applications that post data to that that ledger. It's pretty flexible to support really in the industry, and and they range in size from you know ten million up to Fortune five hundred companies that are using our platform now. So it's pretty broad. We've we've tried to focus on certain sectors, and they all tend to be lead us back to it's more the decision makers and leaders in the organization than the industry. So we want to find high growth companies because they see value in our product, especially in a time where the economy is pretty dynamic. We've seen that over the last two years as we've seen the ups and downs through COVID through the boom over the last you know 18 months to now the fears of a recession. So being able to quickly have a finger on the pulse of what's going on in your business is important. And then the other aspect, we help you know mitigate the risk of human capital, right? Where it's become hard to attract and retain talent. We have a solution that for a fraction of a FP&A resource helps deliver information well beyond what any one, two, three people could produce in these organizations. So they see the value of how we can help them we're, we're the, the supporters of information that help, is going to help drive their, their business. Yeah, no kidding. Can you walk through the product development journey and, and maybe describe any points where you felt like momentum started to accelerate and how the product was being created? Yeah, so as, as I talked about a little bit with the origins of kind of finding those barriers to entry or the barriers to get people on board were always access to data. And so what, you know, through the product development life cycle, it was, we've always been self-funded. So it was creating enough demand from customers to help advance our, our product. And it's been a lot of one early on, it was how do I just get seats at the table? So how do I network around Kansas City and just get invited into different rooms where people are using information and volunteer myself to help bring together the data needed, sometimes at little or no cost. So that that got me a lot of experience, just seeing what people needed to drive decisions in these spaces. And then as we were, you know, as we've grown from that point, like the beginning of what we call Bucks Connect now, you know, that turned into early on creating Excel spreadsheets that we would post on the web through a like a login page and refresh those early in the morning. And people would start to say, yeah, I'd start to see people logging on more to our, our web player than like the monthly refreshes we were doing before. So you could start to you could start to create a business case that there's more demand here. They're logging in, they're logging in every day now versus once a month. And so always through from those beginning stages to now, understanding just putting other products out there and testing and watching, looking. You know, understanding what customers were asking for and also getting direct feedback loop of when we'd post a new product out there, who's logging in, who's using it, are they using it more? And and so a constant feedback cycle. I liked how, you know, one of your podcasts lately, I think it's Sean Jay, where he was talking about the cruises. You know, similar thing where they were he would he would do a a, a donut 
you know, donuts cruise or a adult cruise and just different industry, but same product is how do you listen to your customers and always like, I think that's very important. And even as we've grown, that's one of the areas I want to stay in is always being able to talk to our customers and listen to what they're needing because you're able to test different ideas to see does one, does that help communicate what we do clearer to draw in more customers? And, and is the value proposition, does it become an easier thing for customers to buy into? And then two, if they say yes, are they really validating that yes through usage and other other metrics we're looking on the back end to not, I guess, drive our development off of facts and not, you know, creating a false false narrative of this is what we think the customers want versus this is what we validated the customers wanted. Yeah, and I, I bet for for some of those experiments that it's probably fairly straightforward to see ones that have failed and that nobody's using or no one's utilizing and the opposite as well, the ones that everyone's using and people love. But for any experience experiments you ran where the result was kind of in the middle, where it's not being like overutilized, but there's still like some people using it here and there. How do you decide what to do with those kinds of experiments? So we've learned that if you give something away free and people say, yes, it's not a good signal that they'd actually buy it in real life. An example of that is we, we came out with what we, the first version, what we now call our Bucks Insights report used in M&A. So sign an LOI and it's a report we can often generate within 24 hours after integration with our system. Very deep dive into behavioral patterns and, you know, key financial metrics that give a, you know, just help people get up to the learning curve on a company that they're, they're, they're looking to acquire. The first version of that we brought out to 10 different people and said, like, let's, we'll just load it for free. If you, pro- if you just give us feedback, if you look at it and give us feedback, well, we loaded it for free 10 times and could never schedule a follow-up meeting to get feedback. So it was easy to say yes, easy to integrate, and there was just no, no follow-up. And so then it was going, so that was, that was one thing we learned is there's not any skin in the game. Oftentimes there's no, it's very hard to get a follow-up on. And on on the second, you know, as we've started to toss the idea around that product a little bit more, it was floating around and, and doing a little bit more discovery. Like that was a, if you build it, they will come kind of idea. And, and so then it was, okay, people said yes to it and they liked the idea. How do we actually get them engaged? And that's where we switched it around from a, let me tell you about your own business because they already knew what that business was to who's trying to learn about a business really fast. So it kind of helped us pivot. You know, you, you pitch that idea to an individual owner. They said, great, but they didn't really care. You started pitching that idea to a sales side investment banker or a PE firm or others that were trying to ramp up. And so it was, I think that was one of those, those areas that we learned a lot from of it's a good idea, but people said they liked it, but there's really no follow-up to it. How do we go back to the drawing board and ask why that was? 
And and that was kind of the conclusion we came up with is we were selling it to people that already knew their business like the back of their hand. And and so who was who was the right audience? So that was one of those learning curves that now it's a great product and it's a great great lead to get in the door in a lot of spaces, but it was a the first the first introduction of it almost had us just throw it in a you know throw it in a drawer and forget about it type of area. And for for measuring how valuable customers view a certain feature or product that you're sharing or trying to get feedback on, are there kind of maybe two to three ways that you measure engagement and value to that customer that that helps you determine if that's a feature you'll keep or or implement? It is it is a hundred percent usage. So we can see who logs in and how often they're logging in. That's been the the key to all of it is saying if we if we put something out for clients to log in and use and they never log in, we can see there's multiple di- dimensions. There's analysis they can log into and there's different areas of those analysis. And so we can monitor all of those different aspects of usage. And that's one area that you start to pick up on where is the highest concentration at. And that helps feed our, our marketing and messaging as we go look at new customers. And then also where we focus more time on with existing customers. Yeah. And switching gears a little bit, there's a, uh, I'm becoming really fascinated by sales teams and how they're developed and structured. I'd love to hear about your team broadly and kind of its evolution over time, but especially on the sales side, I, I imagine that early on you and your dad are probably doing a lot of the sales yourselves, but what's, what's been the process evolution on the sales side for you? We are in the middle of that right now. So we have a sales team of one right now besides myself. And I would say 70% of new businesses been through referrals so far. And, and that's one of the, one of the areas we've really focused on over the last six months of how do we create the collateral, the messaging, the, all the content needed to help, you know, as I talked about earlier, we're, we're looking to rapidly expand that team over the next 12 months. So what is, what collateral do we need in, in that space? So it's been one making products like that insights report was the first, first step something that's very concrete because when you get talk about data, it can be very abstract, but people have all different types of uses, all different types of application stacks, all, you know, how I look at sales is going to be different than how you look at sales. And so it becomes very personal. And so like the insights report was the first time that we could print something out and say, Hey, let us plug in. We'll give you this back in 24 hours. And so as he would say, that was the first, piece of information or first piece of collateral that really started making his job easier to open up new doors. And from that, it started to get, and as we've grown the team, it started to, we started to really break out, improve pricing. So it was very transparent. What are our customers buying? Data connections and integrations. And so how do we align pricing very closely to that? So then another point that they can easily go communicate, how much does this cost? to what are the solutions we're providing? And it's just turned down into a, you know, simple, simple matrix. We, we price 
connections integration and, and FP&A time. And so that's what we're selling, integration into applications, the presentation of that data, and then augmented FP&A hours on the side. And, and it was that was where we've spent a lot of time. It's amazing how difficult that can be to work through that and, and getting our team together and, and others involved. So it's been arming our sales team, or I guess our one person that's solely focused on sales with that improved information and, and really going out and testing and making sure that resonates. And so as we are bringing on new sales people now, you know, that's been, that's been the sales process of being a relationship type of sales organization to trying to generate more of a here's collateral and, and drive leads into our business going forward. And are you looking to develop kind of an outbound strategy as well, or double down on referrals and marketing? And what, what are kind of the, the channels you're hoping to develop further? We are trying to move away from the referral base and, and more outbound to draw customers into our, you know, into our business. And that's looking at different email campaigns, messaging case studies, and then also channel partners, different financial advisors, investment banks, private equity firms. You know, as we, we get in and we help one, we start to create a pretty good network. There are other areas, going back to that insights report, that's been heavily used in the M&A space. And in the M&A space, we have a buyer, a seller, an accountant, and an investment banker. And so we're usually getting in through one. And that also helps drive three new relationships that really driven that referral network as well. But it's still driving those referrals, but also making sure we're creating other campaigns to drive awareness to both those audiences and new audiences going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I know you've given a lot of thought to and are, are passionate about is, is making sure you find a peer group as your company grows. Kind of talk about how you've found different peers over time and some of the benefits to having that group of, of people that you can talk with and get to know better who are maybe a couple of steps ahead of you business-wise. Yeah, so it's progressed through time as we've been through this 10 years. At first, it was I when we were first starting our company and working from home, I found a a group, we called ourselves Casey Roundtable, that would get together every other week for breakfast. And kind of it was started with four or five of us and you know grew, you know, kind of grew over time. But it was getting together to every other week to one, create that office environment that none of us had because we were starting businesses in our houses. And then two bounce ideas off of each other. And it's the core of that group still 10 years later, we still get together once a month or once a quarter to have, my wife calls it a support group. I call it peer group or, but we'll talk about different struggles we're having. And, and then to just think of, you know, share ideas to help expand how we're thinking. So every once in a while, we'll have a free idea that is Friday lunch, and we all bring a new idea to 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 the table and 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 share. And so, like, just to challenge each other and how we're thinking about businesses and different problems. You know that that was early on. Now it's finding mentors. You know, people that are like you said, a few years ahead of us that can share 
different experiences or connect you to people that are can help solve problems, whether that's questions about leadership, comm structure, organizational structure, fundraising. And that's been been good because it's I always think it's you can it's nice to have people that are in the same spot in life because you have a lot of responsibility and you can get home and it can be sometimes hard to to just set things down. You could set down your phone, you can close your laptop, but there's still thoughts going through your brain of what's going on at work now, what you want to accomplish this week, this month, this year. And so having people that you can talk to both very honestly about struggles you're having or successes you're having, and they are both, you know, they're supportive in both areas and want to help you in both of those areas and have been there before has been very key. Recently joined a group called Pipelines. It's been great as well. It's 12 different companies around the Midwest that are all roughly in the same stages. And that's and then a, a larger group that has been there and then and been through class before that. And again, same thing. It's a family that you can go to that when something's going very bad or something's going very well, they are just there to support you, listen, and make sure you are navigating that challenge or opportunity as best you can because they've been there before. Yeah. What do you feel like having a, that peer group has helped you the most? Is there any one improvement or change that you've made that you feel like you can tie most closely to that peer group? The one thing is they tend to be high performers. And so they help to set the bar high. And it is And I think they're all sitting there trying to push each other instead of like, there's always competition, but it it's kind of beyond that of they see your potential. And so when you, you know, if you're lifting the bar as high as you can and you start to get tired and set it down, they help you lift it back up and, and continue to push. And so that's, I think that's one of the areas that, and it's, it's vague, but it, it covers a lot of space of when you are, when you need pushed, there's no, they're there texting you or calling you and checking on you to make sure you are trying to reach your full potential. And they're all leaders. And I think it's a important thing on leadership. They get as much excitement. I think good peer groups, good mentors, good leaders get as much excitement about who they have influence and their success on. So if you think about like great coaches or great great business leaders, you think about like GE or you think about like a Hayden Fry in football. They never get talked about without their whole family tree of great leaders they've influenced. And I think it's the same thing if you find a good peer group, a good mentor, they get as much joy out of influencing your success and helping you succeed and being behind the scenes as greater joy than success they have themselves. And so I think that's one of the things that I've found through it is is just having that group there that is just selfless in that and then wanting to see you succeed. Has that been a, an evolution for you too, where you've expanded your your vision and thought bigger about the things you can accomplish over time? Like, I'd, I'd be curious what your mindset was in starting Bucks and maybe where it is today and how much it's changed. Yeah, I think 
<laughs> so that's, yeah, that's changed a lot. When we started Bucks, I was single and just, I thought it was just a lot of fun being able to see all these different businesses, all these different problems and just sit there and learn what, just learn what these other cool people in the city were doing and getting exposure to that. And then you get married and have children and it all of a sudden it quickly changed to, okay, I have to create something. Now it's time to like create a company and do something more out of it. And so that's been over the decade has been very, it's changed, changed the way you looked at the business and, and then also look at what you're doing. It's, we've started to grow, we've started to grow our team and it's more about how do we create something bigger than just, I guess, myself and my dad who started the company and, and get other people involved that can help, you know, I think create something pretty, pretty awesome. So, and that's where the goal has gone today is if we are creating a solution that our clients rave about, and then also a company that attracts top talent, I think there's just a lot of potential there with where we can go. Yeah, the top talent piece is super crucial, especially for a company like yours, where it's small, but growing quickly. What are some of the most successful ways you found to attract and keep talent at Bucks? From our first hires, I think when we were talking, you know, the, the, we're the first two guys, a couple guys that we brought on and we were talking about what we were doing. I kind of shared my story of like, you know, this is the exposure I've got. This is the problems I've got to solve. And I will promise you that as you spend, if you put into, you know, if you are dedicated and put in time of bucks, you will be very, you'll look back at, on it as a, a great time in your career and something that helped accelerate. You learn more and kind of surpass your peers by the exposure you're getting in this position. And, you know, that's something I still think about every day as we bring in talent, both on as we bring in talent in different departments or as we bring on new leaders in our organization. You know, there are some things that we just hired a COO who's just absolutely amazing. And she brings things to the table that through her experience that I've just never had exposure to. And so what that allows you know, what she brings to the table is fulfilling that promise to everybody else as well. They are learning from her and getting training and learning how to solve problems in a way that I just don't have the experience. So that's how we've kind of gone around retaining, you know, attracting the first talent and holding true to that promise, I think has helped us continue to attract talent going forward. So, and it's created a fun culture. I think we have a lot of fun in the office with we're unique in a tech startup that people still want to come in the office and we've had to get larger space over the last two years as we've grown. And so that helps as well. The culture just kind of builds on itself. People want to be here. People think they are creating value for themselves and the company by being here. And that just continues to attract, I think, new talent as they see what we're doing. It's been pretty fun to be a part of. Yeah, in many ways, you're a a steward of that person's career when they come to join your your team, for, at least for that, that period of time in their career. And it's a big responsibility. 
yeah, they are they are giving a lot to you, and you hope they are able to take gain as much or more from what they've what they've given to the organization. So it's I think they all see that and know we really believe that, and so it helps continue to drive that forward. You mentioned also that you want to make sure that these folks' experiences with Box are really positive and you do what you're saying you were going to do what does that look like for a new employee joining box like when when you say you want to fulfill their goals for time with you what does that typically look like in the past it's been i think it's there's been somewhat it hasn't been as as organized as it's becoming like it's in the past it was really Hey, we have it's a three-man team. This is what we want to accomplish in the next year. Here's revenue goals. This is the different areas we want to accomplish in product marketing, organizational-wise. And they've had to, you know, we've kind of just broke that off as we look at, you know, our quarterly goals or or annual goals. You know, we want to implement healthcare. You know, you go figure out how we get a healthcare plan. It's kind of like learning early on just being thrown to a fire and a lot of people a lot of people who were brought on thrive in that as we've grown kind of mentioned earlier we are going through performance plan and comp plans now and that's getting much more structured you know get trying to get feedback from people in their as they have their one-on-ones and and other you know peer reviews of what do you want to accomplish let's put that into a plan to help you you know develop those skills and that's that's a lot of, again, what new COO or different team members are bringing to the table that I never had the experience. And so it's, you know, we are now creating more of a formalized plan for them to achieve those goals. But I hope other people also see that as, hey, when we think there's a gap in the resources available to you, we want to make sure we're bringing on leadership and team members to help fill those voids. And we're you know, I'm not sitting there thinking that I have all the answers or know everything. So that's, I think they, they build confidence in all of us by being able to listen and then help bring in people to fill gaps where we have gaps. You mentioned the, how much the company has grown. And I, I imagine there's a ton of change management going on as the company you know, morphs into a new form, maybe on an annual or quarterly basis. What do you feel like you've learned the most about managing change within a company and within a team? One, as you face challenges, you always seem to get through it. And so the more you stress or panic around change, the just the more I think you're you're in a hamster wheel. And so as you as you see change and good things happen or bad things happen. Being able to stay calm and think about what's going on and what's needed to navigate that change. That's, I think, very important to just to just sit back and, and be able to listen and bring it all in. And then change management going forward, developing a plan as we go through and we've always had a, you know, your annual budget. And then we we can do late assessments and we can set, you know, as we try to use EOS and implement that more and more set rocks and, and, and different 
set different goals for us as we look at the quarter and the year. I think by having that plan and measuring against that plan helps you understand where things are deviating from it and helps you better adjust to what's needed going forward. You know, if you are having higher churn with customers or people aren't logging on as much or you're blowing out of blowing your budget out of the water in certain areas, having that benchmark, whether it was accurate or not, at least gives you some way to say, this is what I thought, and this is what's actually happening. And why was there that difference? And how do we adapt? And this is the new normal. Or how do we change that and get back to plan of where we thought it was? What's your philosophy for setting goals? So setting goals that your team can achieve, but also have enough ambition that it, it, there's some stretch there. What, what, what's your overall goal setting philosophy? I think it's important. So overall, when I look at a budget, I have to, like when I set the plan for 2023, when, when we look at it as a, a leadership team, we have to sit there and, and ask one, I think we can honestly look in the mirror and say, if we hit this goal, do you think, you know, at the end of the year, do you think we're, we would feel good? One, is it a layup? And we think it's just too easy. And so we're not pushing ourselves. Or is it so unrealistic that halfway through the year, everybody's going to be demotivated and, and they're just like, why are we working hard? We're not going to hit our annual, annual bonus. So there's thing one, if we can set a plan and we look through it and say, from all of our different metrics, this looks realistic. And this looks like if we get to December 31st and we hit this goal, you just, you'd feel really good. I think that's just the first test because we've had, you know, two or three really high growth years. And our goal is to continue to build on that growth. So I think you just use logic and also just being honest with yourself of saying, how do we, how do we feel this goal is? And then, and then also making sure everybody is being able to participate in the success if you hit that goal. So we have a, Profits interest interest plan. We have annual bonuses that are all aligned with that that goal, and so and we run it by everybody to say, from here are the customers we think we're going to bring on. Here's our churn rate that you're getting measured against. Here is X, Y, and Z, and this is how we're going to accomplish it. We look at it several different ways to make sure it looks reasonable and looks like it's going to be challenging. So that philosophy, I don't I don't think too good of a stretch goal is. I think it can be very risky and too short of a goal that you can just win on, you know, that's just a no-brainer win on, probably doesn't push you enough to say, who can we really become and where are we going? Have you ever made adjustments to annual goals where maybe halfway through the year, you're realizing that the goal you set, maybe on the, the upper end, like the, the, the goal you set is becoming more of a layup because your team is just improving or there's some product that is more successful than you thought it was do do you create any stretch goals or like a secondary goal that incentivizes the team further or or is there just a i'd be curious like just intra-year goal setting or goal adjustment perhaps we have that broken down on a like our annual goal on a monthly basis we haven't we haven't to date ever adjusted a goal and we have not had a stretch goal. We've talked about it this year of 
what is just a absurd goal that if we hit it, you know, something fun will happen in the company. So if we hit for 30% above our goal, X, Y, and Z, we could do X, Y, or Z or something like that. We started to talk about that. We haven't done it yet. It's really around, we've talked about, we just haven't done it. I like the idea of it, but I think we need some maturity more in our go-to-market strategy and, and some of the things we talked about earlier around sales of, hey, how can we really just accelerate this engine three times as much and really think we can hit a you know, 3x year? Yeah, absolutely. What what goal do you feel like you're most excited to achieve this year, either financial or more qualitative? The the goal around growing the sales team and the sales engine is is one I think is we are feeling very strongly about and that's something that will I mean it's it's related to top line but there's more I guess qualitative factors around it than quantitative factors and you know, being able to get that built out and be successful doing it opens up a lot of opportunity. So that's that's one that I'm I'm really excited about and seeing it mature is, has been fun to be a part of. First closing question for you. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on over the last couple of years? I would say raising capital was one, an idea we I thought we'd never explore and started to change my opinion on that recently. So I see that in the startup world, you'd see a lot of people celebrating with about a raise instead of other successes. And I was all always around like, how do we how do we get customers to fund it? And how do we drive demand and, and do it ourselves? But as I've we've grown, and we've continued to improve the way we communicate what we do and the value we provide that's started to create more conversations around you know people that really can be strategic partners for us and just very valuable members of our team by giving them different ways to participate in our success and so we've started to you know explore that side of the business and that's I think something that really if you asked me a year ago wasn't that interested in and now really excited about how we have evolved and grown and some of the opportunities I think that can can help us to achieve our goals and success going forward. What's the best business you've ever seen? So I've thought about this a lot. We see a lot of businesses. And as I read this question and, and I've heard, you know, on the podcast, other responses, you know, somebody said to me once, I like to invest in businesses that are successful in spite of themselves which I thought was really funny. It was, it was a capital allocator guy and he's ran a family office. And, and so that, that was a funny comment because I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. That's a lot of value creation. And I'd say there's one company that comes to mind, one of our first customers that is like the complete opposite of this. The company, uh, Zycar, and they, were, they sold high-end cigar accessories. And the founders and the COO were so deliberate on every single action that they, you know, it was the one of the best run companies I've ever seen. And you could see that in their profit. You could see that in, you know, when they finally exit the the value people put on on how well of a company they created. 
And I could see that as, you know, early on in my career, I could go into that company, leave and go to another client. And I'd always just walk away saying, holy cow, like, look at the talent they've been able to retain. And it went down to the founder would, before he hired anybody for a job, would spend a week, a month doing that job, writing down the job description, writing down what success looked like for that role. So very deliberate in the positions they created and who they hired for to when they started using our platforms, you know, it was very important that any piece of information that was they had access to would change behavior and not, you know, one of the comments was, we don't want information that's nice to know. We want information that's going to change behaviors or drive behavior. And so it's just everything was, they were very focused, laser focused on their budget, on their team, on their development of the team. We started working with them eight years ago and they were acquired and and so no longer a customer. And that happened four years ago and still a business that I think of in my mind of, you know, how do we become more like Zycar in how we grow our team and how we develop our talent and how we are just laser focused in everything we do. That's cool benchmark to have. Yeah, that is a cool one to have. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on the podcast. It's great to get to chat with you more. I'm Hopefully I get to drive down to Kansas City at some point in the near future, get to get to spend more time. But until then, looking forward to chatting and here pretty soon. No, thanks for having me. Love, love the podcast and thankful to be able to be a part of it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.